dad jokes. I, I love those dad jokes. And I have been accused of having some of my own dad jokes. And my kids are now burying their heads in shame. But here we go. You ready for this? Yeah. Why don't crabs give to charity? Dana, it's because they're shellfish. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me tell you a joke about a pizza. Never mind. It's too cheesy. And, uh, and my favorite one, my favorite one. Why are pirates great? They just are. Come on. These are like great Father's Day jokes. There we go. All right. For real, though, for real, we're going to get into the Bible today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark chapter 11, if you want to turn there. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher in the back. He'd come and uh, bring one of those forward to you. Uh, Father's Day, though, it is, it's fitting. You know, we can have some fun about fathers. We can talk all the things that are great about fathers and uh, their jokes being the best, especially mine. Uh, but it's fitting today that we're going to look at a passage that Jesus is going to reveal himself as the king. He's going to reveal himself as the king. And as the king, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, the royal city, on a, on a war horse. All right, it's not really a war horse. It's more of a donkey. But he's going to ride into the city like a king, ready to, to uh, assume and establish his kingdom. And, and one of the things that's awesome is, is it's just fitting that they're just fixed, fitted on Father's Day. That everything worked out, that this is the passage we're in. But we're going to see that while Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem as a king, we're going to see that he's a different kind of king. He's a kind of king that most of us probably would not expect. But he is a far greater king. So today, the, the, the passage, the text is all going to be about us worshiping the one true king. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. And uh, before I read, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. God, as we have the opportunity to open up your word, God, I'm thankful that this isn't just a pastor's opinion. I'm thankful that this isn't just opinion hour, hour but God, this is your word being taught. God, this is your word being spoken. God, we pray that you would give us understanding. God, I pray that you would open up our minds, that we would receive the words that you have for us. That, God, you would give us understanding and you would grow us and stretch us and draw us closer to you. God, we love you and we plead for your presence with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have one of these Bibles, hardback from the church, we're page 847. Start out Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. See, this story we're going to read today is, is what's commonly known as, as Palm Sunday. It's, it's the, the end of a journey that Jesus has been taking. Jesus has kind of zigzagged, zigzagged his way all through, uh, all through 
Galilee and, and Samaria, and he went up north into Gentile territory. Now he's finally zigzagging his way down into Judea. And this has been a nine-month journey that Jesus has been taking, preparing for this time to enter Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that when he enters Jerusalem on this Sunday, that in just a few days, Jesus is going to, to be crucified. And, and, and it's on this that he enters this holy city. And, and Jesus, this, this, these first six verses really sets the stage. Jesus wants to establish in the minds of the disciples and in our minds that he is the king. He wants it to be very clear as he's heading into Jerusalem who he is. He's not just, he's not just another man. He is, he's not just another teacher. He's not a good person. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So on this first Palm Sunday, Jesus is, is walking in front of his disciples and they come to, to Bethany. And, and Jesus sends two of his disciples into the town to obtain a, a, a donkey, a, a colt, a, a donkey's young donkey, a young donkey, I guess is what you would call it. And in Jesus's instructions to his disciples, we see that everything that Jesus is doing is, is, is intentional. This wasn't just this fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Hey, we need to go find something to ride. Go find me a, a colt. No, everything that Jesus was doing was intentional. Everything leading up to his sacrificial death that week, his, his burial, his resurrection, everything was carefully ordered by God. I mean, the timing was just right. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem during the time of Passover. Everything was intentional. The way that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this young colt that had never been ridden before, it's not just a coincidence. Because over 500 years before this happened, before we get to this story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah, that the king would come riding on a, on a young colt that had never been ridden. It says in Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. See, Jesus not only fulfills his prophecy by riding on a donkey, but Jesus goes even above and beyond that and takes a donkey that has never been ridden on before. In biblical culture, when an animal was used for some sort of sacrificial purpose, for a sacrificial, sacrificial task, that animal had to be devoted to that task only and couldn't be used for common labor. So that's why Jesus comes and takes this young donkey that had never been ridden before. And by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, what Jesus is doing is he's telling the people, I am the promised Messiah. I'm the promised king. And here I am coming into Jerusalem. But he's also saying he's also a, a kind of king that nobody would expect. I mean, we would expect this king to come in on a war horse and, and holding his sword ready to make battle. But Jesus isn't on a war horse. Jesus is on a donkey. A donkey of all things. The donkey was to demonstrate humility and divine condescension. See, the, the same picture of Jesus is when he was born. Where Jesus, as the king, he wasn't born in a stable. He was born in a stable. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in, in, in anything major and, 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 and marvelous. He was born in a stable. And this is the same picture as Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Is the point is, hey, I am a different kind of king. I'm a humble king. 
This is a message that Jesus has been teaching his disciples and you and I for, for, for several weeks now about how Jesus, his kingdom is different than any kingdom that we can imagine. Jesus is coming in to say, hey, I'm winning by losing. I'm going to establish my kingdom by dying, by, by showing you what it means to have sacrificial love, to give your life as a ransom. And so this is the wonder about the kingship of Jesus. It is different than any other kingship we could ever imagine. So the story plays out exactly like Jesus says it would. They go into the city, they get the colt, and they bring it to Jesus. And, and, and this is what it says. Verse, look, looking back in the text, it says in verse 7. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches uh, that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. See, when we just read that text, it's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome to think about. I mean, I mean, everything's happening just like we would want it to be. I mean, if Jesus is really the Messiah and he's really the king, if he's coming into Jerusalem and all the people are celebrating and all the people are praising and all the people are worshiping, everybody's there to celebrate Jesus. That's, a, that's like, that's what we want, right? Like, that's so exciting. That, that is a beautiful picture. I mean, this is, this is the climax of all the miracles and all the things that Jesus had been doing. He, he has earned this acclaim. The people here, as they're worshiping and they're praising, they are announcing Jesus to be their king. To be the king that they've been expecting ever since the fall of man. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when sin first entered the world. The kings, the crowds treat Jesus like royalty. Like, like, like the true king. Not only did the disciples take their shirts off and put their shirts on that donkey for Jesus to have a makeshift saddle. But it says the crowds as well, they took their shirts and their jackets off and they laid them on the ground as a as gesture of reference, as a gesture of reverence, indicating that they had a willingness to give everything to him. That if Jesus even wanted to trample on their property, that they could do it, that they would be willing to give everything they had to this new king. And the crowds... You see them, they're, they're passionately singing and praising Jesus as their king. This would have been like a huge worship service with all hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people just praising Jesus and singing to his name. Most of the words that they are singing comes from Psalm chapter 118 that declares Jesus to be the Messiah, declares Jesus to be the king. When they sing out Hosanna, what that literally means is they're saying, save us, save us. The people, they've been looking for their savior. They've been looking for this king. And now they're welcoming Jesus with arms wide open. The phrase that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, again, points to acknowledging that they are acknowledging Jesus as their savior, as their Messiah. They are ready for Jesus to take the throne and to, to establish his kingdom and to make things right in their world. And we can look at this story and we can say, man, this is awesome. This is exactly like it should be. If we were to write the story, this is the way we would write it to happen. But things aren't always as they seem. I mean, this could be an exciting thing because all the people are, are worshiping Jesus. Isn't that what we want? But Mark, Mark doesn't include this in his story. 
But Luke tells the same story of this Palm Sunday, of Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. But at the end of Mark's story, he has a little something else that happens that's striking, that helps us understand what's happening. In Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, Luke says, And when Jesus drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It's striking. Here the people are praising Jesus. They're singing praise to his name, acknowledging him as the king. Yet as soon as Jesus gets alone, he begins to weep over the city. He begins to weep over the people. See, Jesus, he's on his way to the city. He's on his way to the temple. The people are singing and worshiping and praising. But at some point, he gets to a spot where he can overlook the entire city. And Jesus begins to weep. See, Jesus, he is God in the flesh. That means he is omniscient. He knows all things. And he knows that this crowd who's passionately singing and praising him today, who are singing all these blessed things, Hosanna, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing this on on Sunday. But he knows that just in a few days, their chant will change from Hosanna and will become crucify him, crucify him crucify him. And these tears of Jesus are tears of God's divine mercy because he has every right to completely destroy these people. He has every right to, to, to blow them to oblivion. Yet Jesus has come to love them. And he is going to the cross for them to, to, to give his life to pay the ransom, something they don't even realize they need. So how do we understand this crowd? How do we understand this crowd where, where, where here they are singing praise to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord, yet then a few days later they're going to be shouting crucify him. How do we understand why they could go from, from praising him as their king to wanting him dead just a few days later? I guess it really hinges on, uh, depends on what kind of savior the people were looking for. And ultimately, the kind of savior you're looking for depends on what you believe has gone wrong in the world. The kind of savior that you look for depends on what you believe has gone wrong in the world. You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd thought, and the disciples as well, they thought Jesus is finally accepting his kingship. He's finally going to come into Jerusalem and establish his kingdom and and conquer Rome and kill all their enemies and restore uh, Israel back to their prominence, to give them back their power and their influence. And so when they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us, they don't have a personal salvation in mind. Rather, they have a uh, national restoration, a political revolution that they were looking for. This had been their hope about this king the entire time. To them, what was wrong in their world, it wasn't sin. It was political. What was wrong in their world was Roman occupation, Roman taxation, Roman rule. That's all they could think about. Now, one of the things that we've talked about as we studied through the gospel of Mark is I've warned us not to take ourselves too highly, not to think too highly of ourselves. Because sometimes it's easy for us to read the Bible and read about these guys. You're just like, you're missing it completely. 
And we can think and we can say, man, those guys are fools. There's no way I would do the same thing. There's no way that I would miss what Jesus is all about. But look, these things are written for our benefit. So that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and help us realize that we're not all that different from those disciples. We oftentimes do the very same things. See, the crowds, the crowds, they were worshiping a Jesus of their own making. They had read the Old Testament. They read all the prophecies about the Messiah, about the king who's going to come. And they pick and choose which ones they want to believe and accept. They, they found the ones that they liked and they apl- applied those to Jesus. They liked all the prophecies about the king coming and, and, and establishing a kingdom and rescuing the people. They liked those ideas. And so that's the kind of idea that they had about Jesus. But they didn't like those other prophecies like Isaiah 53 that, that, that explains that Jesus is doing this by dying and by suffering. See, this dying and suffering about this king, about this savior, it was completely against their, their, their paradigm. It was, it was beyond any expectation that they had for the Messiah to suffer and to die and to sacrifice. They had this idea that the Messiah is supposed to rule. He's supposed to reign. He's supposed to conquer. That's what the Messiah does. That's what the king does. So when Jesus said things like this, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, they didn't like hearing things like this. They didn't like this idea that maybe Jesus was a different kind of king. Maybe he was talking about a different kind of kingdom. And so when they heard things like that, it went one in one ear and right out the other one. I wonder, I wonder if this ever happens to you and I. See, Jesus had just said, if we want to follow him, that we must die to ourselves. He just said, if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. See, I wonder for how many of us that goes in one ear and right out the other, because it's kind of against our expectation of what God and what religion should be like. See, for the Jews, it was against their expectation to have a Messiah that was not going to establish an earthly kingdom. It was completely against their expectation. No, the Messiah, the reason he's coming is for an earthly kingdom. That was what they had. And so for Jesus not to do that, it was against their expectation. And for you and I, Oftentimes, the idea of God and and a Messiah is against our expectation if he's not going to make us happy, if he's not going to give us whatever we want. So we have this idea about God and Jesus, and he's there to fulfill our wishes, to make us feel good, to make us feel happy. So I wonder, I wonder how many of us are worshiping a Jesus of our own making. Maybe, Maybe you're worshiping a little bit of a Prozac Jesus. Maybe you've created in your mind that Jesus is a lot like Prozac. See, have you ever created a Jesus that makes you feel better? Like a therapeutic Jesus? You know, living in this world is hard and bad things happen. And so you need a Jesus who comes alongside you and reassures you and and lets you say, it's okay. I'm in control. It's okay. I mean, this is 
This is one I think I probably struggle with sometimes myself. This Prozac Jesus. Because when things go bad, when things happen that are difficult and, and, and hard, I immediately tell myself, it's okay. God's in control. And some people say, well, that's great faith. Pastor, you got such great faith. And if I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes it's not faith at all. Sometimes it's actually apathy. I tell myself these things because it's easier for me to say God's in control than for me to actually have to feel the weight of, of brokenness than to feel what's happening around me. I tell myself these things because I don't want to care. I don't want to mourn with those who mourn. I don't want to weep with those who weep. I'd rather say, you know, God's in control. So then I can protect myself from having to feel the weight of brokenness around me. So I take a little dose of my Prozac Jesus so I can numb out the pain and I can not feel like this world is falling apart around me. Let me tell you, Jesus is absolutely in control. We need to understand. Jesus is absolutely in control. But Jesus was willing to experience pain. He was willing to feel pain. He was willing to stand over Jerusalem and weep over the people who were rejecting him. This is the kind of savior that Jesus was. He's standing looking over Jerusalem and he has these emotions inside of him that cause him to weep and to feel the weight for what the people are doing. And he calls you and I to do the same. Not to have a little Prozac that just numbs everything, but he calls us uh, to, to uh, care deeply, to be the most caring people in the world. When tragedies happen, we should be the first ones to feel the weight and desire to respond because we love people the way that God loves them. Maybe you don't have a Prozac Jesus, but maybe you got a little bit of a Walmart Jesus. Maybe you've created Jesus to be a little, a little bit like Walmart. Like he's the place you go when you want something in your life. You know, you want a husband, you want a job, you want a car, you want status, you want whatever it is, you go to Jesus because he's your Walmart. You go to Jesus and you say, hey, here's what I want. But if he doesn't give you what you want, then no big deal because then you can always go to Target. Or you can find some other savior and start searching for somebody else who's going to give you whatever your heart desires. Let me tell you, the true Jesus, the true Jesus will give you what you need. Even if, as, if, even if it's at the cost of not giving you what you want. That's what the true Jesus does. Maybe, maybe in your mind, maybe you're worshiping a, a district attorney, Jesus. You've got this idea that he's your own personal attorney. And he's going to go after all those people that have wronged you. You've got a list of all those people that have violated you, that have wronged you, that have, have done anything bad to you. And, and you know, ah, Jesus, you're going to hold them accountable for what they've done to me. You're going to punish them because they have hurt me and they've caused pain. And Jesus, you're going to get after them, right? See, the true Jesus not only points out the wrongs and the sins in the hearts of other people, but the true Jesus also points out the wrongs and the sins in our own hearts as well. He's not only offering you forgiveness for your sins, but God also offers that same forgiveness to your worst enemies, to those who have done the most harm for you. Maybe, maybe you've worshipped in your mind this retirement plan, Jesus. You've got this idea where you've been paying your dues. 
You know, you've been, you've been, you've been giving to the church. You've been tithing faithfully. You've been going to church. You've been uh, reading your Bible. You've been doing everything you're supposed to do. You even sometimes will give a few dollars to the guy sitting on the street corner. And you've done all these really good things. And as long as Jesus will give you heaven at the end of the day, then you're okay. You've earned it. You've spent all this time earning that retirement, earning that, that, that piece of heaven, the kingdom in the sky. So you've earned it. So Jesus becomes your retirement plan. I'm going to earn, 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 earn. So that way one day I'm going to be able to take advantage of it. See, the true king, the true Jesus says that our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags to him. See, if we're going to make it to heaven, it's not because we've earned it. It's not because of our marriage. It's not because of what we've done. It's going to be because of his works, because of what he's done for us. Are you worshiping a Jesus of your own making? Or are you worshiping the true Jesus of the Bible? It's a guy by the name of uh, George Bernard Shaw. He summarized what we do. He summarized it like this. He said, God created us in his image, and we decided to return the favor. We don't need a savior who is a product of our own wants, a God of our own making one that we created for ourselves by some sort of coping mechanism mechanism to make this life easier to get by. We need to follow the one true Jesus, the one true king. And how do you know if you're worshiping a God of your own making, a Jesus of your own making? It's because we will, we will praise him, but we will never suffer for him. If you don't have the true Jesus, you will praise him, but you will not be willing to suffer for him. Are you willing to suffer for your Jesus. If you're worshiping the true Savior, you will be willing to die for him. But if you're worshiping a, 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 a Savior of your own making, you will live for him, but you will not be willing to die for him. If you're worshiping a Jesus of your own making, uh, you will be able to read the scriptures without truly ever wanting to obey them. You will read what he wants, but you don't actually believe you have to obey them. We will always seek to be happy in Jesus without ever being willing to deny ourselves for Jesus. One more thing. How do you know if you're worshiping the, the, the Jesus of your own making? Let me ask you this. Does that Jesus that you worship, does he ever contradict you? Does he ever contradict you? Because one of your own making won't ever contradict you. That won't ever happen. See, he looks like you. He's made in your image. He wants the same things you want. He will let you stay exactly where you are and you will be miserable in this life and the next if you continue to worship a Jesus who never contradicts you. See, the true Jesus, he absolutely will contradict you. When you're hating somebody, he will say, no, 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 stop. You need to forgive just as I forgave you. See, if you're worshiping the true Jesus, when you go astray, when you go down the wrong path, he says, no, no, that's not my way. That way leads to death. Come follow me. Come follow me. Only the true Jesus can change you, can transform you, and can ultimately fulfill you. There's a writer in the 1900s, probably one of the greatest writers in the 1900s by the uh, name of uh, Auden, W.H. Auden. And he went back to Christianity after being atheist. He was a, in his life, he was a Christian, and then he chose atheism, and then he went back to Christianity. And his friends asked him, they said, how come you went back to Christianity? And this is what he said. He said, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. 
He is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. He's saying, man, I've read the New Testament and Jesus is not the kind of savior that anybody would have made up. Jesus is not the kind of savior that we would have chosen for ourselves. He contradicts everything that we want. He defies all the expectations that we could put on him. He is the opposite of everything that would be if we made him up in our own minds. And therefore, to Alden, he says he's real because of that. And his friends asked him, they said, well, what about Buddha? What about, what about Muhammad? And, and, and he responded this way. He said, none of the others arouse all sides of me to cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. So how do we make sure that we are worshiping the one true Jesus and not one of our own making? It all comes down to this one question. It comes down to this question. What do you believe has gone wrong in the world? What do you believe has gone wrong in the world? I'll tell you, there's only one correct answer. We might look and say, well, well, I know what's gone wrong in the world is politics. It's politics. If we could just get a new president and a new Congress, if, if, if you know, if maybe, it's, maybe it's Donald Trump or maybe it's Mike Huckabee or Hillary Clinton, whoever it is, if we could just get someone new in the White House, then everything in our world would be made right. Everything in our country would be made right. Maybe. Maybe what's wrong in this world, maybe it's some sort of moral issue. Maybe it's abortion or, or, or same-sex marriage or, or something like this. And if everybody would just believe the way that we think they should believe, then our world would be made just right and everything would be perfect and dandy, right? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's racism. You know, this is a—our our, our, country is in a little bit of turmoil regarding racism lately. And maybe if we could just end all racism, then maybe everything would be better. Let me say— All those things are important. They're important. But that's not what's wrong in the world. You want to know what's wrong in the world is? You want to know what's wrong in the world? It's you. And it's me. You and I, we are what's wrong in the world. And why is that? It's because we're sinners. It's because we're broken people. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us in here. We've chosen to rebel against what's right and to do things our own way. And that makes every one of us sinners. Every one of us. Human beings, every descendant from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have a sin nature, which means we are always bent towards sin. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death and sin spread to all men because all have sinned. Every one of us, by nature, we are always bent towards sin. We are always bent towards rebelling against God and doing things our own way. You and I... And our sin is what's wrong in the world. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with racism. It has to do with sin. That is what's wrong in our world. And a political savior will not fix what's gone wrong in your life. A political savior will not fix what's gone wrong in America. A sugar daddy with boatloads of money who gives you everything you want cannot fix what has gone wrong in your life. A relationship, a job, any of those things, they will not fix what's gone wrong in your life. There's only one thing that can fix what's gone wrong in you. Listen, this is why Jesus came.
came. Jesus came to fix you and me and our sin problem. That's why Jesus came. He came into Jerusalem and he was betrayed by one of his disciples named Judas. He was arrested and he was brought before the high priests and before the governor. He was wrongly convicted of crimes he never committed. He was beaten. He was humiliated. Then he was nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he took the punishment for every one of your sins. For every one of our sins. He took that punishment upon himself every time you blew it. Every time you thought about blowing it, he took that upon himself. He paid that penalty for you. He took the death that you deserved on the cross. He suffered in your place and he gave his life for yours. He was buried in a grave and three days later, he rose from that grave, conquering Satan, death, hell itself. So let's be clear. What kind of savior Jesus is. He's not a Prozac kind of savior. He's not a Walmart kind of savior. He's not a district attorney kind of savior. He's a people savior. He's a sin savior. He's a personal savior. And today, he can be your savior. Let me tell you what. This is awesome. This is awesome. That this is the kind of savior that Jesus is. That he can fix what's gone wrong in you and I and everybody else. If we choose to surrender to him. If we come to him by faith. <laughs> this is worth us praising and, and having a party greater than the, what those crowds did when Jesus entered the city. Because he has dealt with what's gone wrong in our hearts. He has made us given us an opportunity to be made right. And that is worthy of all sorts of praise and honor and glory and worship that we could give him. We should fill this room because of how good he is. So let me tell you what, as we get ready to respond to God's word this morning in worship, I want us to outdo those crowds. I want us to, to sing loud. I want us to get into the worship that we can praise him because of who he is, because of what he has done. He has fixed and he has offered to fix what's gone wrong in your heart and in mine. And that is worthy of all sorts of praise. But I'll tell you what, today, today's also Father's Day. This is an opportunity for us to recognize the men who have had influences over our lives. And I think you're supposed to, you know, church culture, I don't know what you're supposed to do on Father's Day. Maybe you're supposed to pat the fathers on the back and say, good job, guys. Keep it up. But I just want to speak to you men for a minute. Men, you are called by God to be the spiritual leaders of your homes. You're not called to be dictators but you're called to love your family with the kind of love that Jesus has for us. The kind of love that Jesus has been talking about and teaching us for weeks on end. A sacrificial love. A servanthood. A, a love that's willing to give yourself to the point of death. A servant's love. So men, I wonder. I don't care if you're a father or not. Men, I wonder. What kind of savior are you worshiping? What kind of Jesus are you worshiping? 
What savior does your family see you worship? What savior does your neighbors see you worship? What Jesus does your co-workers see you worship? Do they see you worship the savior of success? Thinking if you could just succeed and win at all costs, then life would be great. Do they see you worship the savior of pleasure? Whatever that is, maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's that thing that you keep seeking pleasure from, the bottle or those websites. What kind of savior does your family see you worshiping? Men, God does not call you and expect you to be perfect. There's this idea, fathers are supposed to be perfect. Men, that's a lie. Don't believe that. You don't have to be perfect. But the one thing I know that God does expect from you is that you worship the one true Jesus, the one true Savior. This means that you acknowledge that you are what's wrong in the world, that you are a sinner in need of grace, in need of forgiveness, that you confess your sin and you cry out to God in repentance. Then there's nothing more powerful that you can do for your family, for your neighbors, for those around you. There's nothing more powerful that you can do than to confess your sin and to cry out to God in repentance. For you to admit your failings and to ask God to rescue you, to seek forgiveness, to worship the one true king. Men, there's nothing more powerful that you can do. You can fail in every other area, but if you get this right, if you get this right, I tell you what, you're doing more for your family than others have done for years before you by trying to do everything just right. Repent, acknowledge your brokenness, and seek Jesus. That is the most important thing that you can do for your families. So this morning, not only are we going to respond to God's word through worship, we're also going to have the opportunity to observe communion. Communion was instituted on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and says, this represents my broken body that was broken for you on the cross. And he took the cup, he took the juice, and he said, this represents the new covenant between God and people that Through the shedding of Jesus' blood, we have forgiveness of sins. Communion becomes this perfect picture of Jesus coming and setting us free from sin, of paying the penalty, of becoming our ransom. Communion, if you're not a believer, if you're not yet a Christian, we believe that communion isn't for you yet. It's for Christians to remember what Jesus has done for them. I encourage you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, Do it today. Do it today and partake with us. I'm going to ask you to come down in a minute and and partake in communion. If you have not made that decision to become a Christian, come down and say, Pastor, Pastor, would you pray with me? Would you pray so I can become a believer today? The Apostle Paul in communion, he he regarded communion as an act of, of worship. A way that we are to remember the death and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And he says, he says as well, before we partake of communion, we're to examine our lives for any sin. And we're to confess any sin before we partake of communion.
So men, here's what I want you to do. Men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to lead in communion this morning. I want you to lead your family in communion this morning. Our Sunday school leaders are going to come out in just a few minutes. And men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab whoever you brought with you. Your wife, your kids if you have kids. I want you to bring them forward if they know Jesus. I want you to help them take the elements. I want you to take your family someplace. Maybe up in the front, maybe back to your pew. And men, I want you to confess your need for Jesus. I want you to confess your sin. To repent of your sin. I want you to pray with your family. I want you to pray with your family. That they would see you worship the one true king. The one true Jesus. Men, do not take this lightly. Do not take this lightly. This might be awkward, but I tell you what, this is the most important thing that you can do for your family today. If you're here alone, and you don't, you don't have a husband or another man with you today, I invite you to still come forward on your own. Come forward on your own and partake of the elements when you're ready. Our worship team is going to lead us in a couple of songs. You've got plenty of time. I encourage you men, do this today. Show the people around you that you will worship the one true King, Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, our world is full of so many false saviors that we can spend all of our devotion and all of our time and all of our energies. God, men especially, I know we have that temptation always to to pursue other things. But God, I pray right now for every one of us in here today that we would surrender and, and, and submit all those false gods, all those false saviors to you. And that today we would just surrender ourselves to you, that we will worship the one true king, that we will acknowledge that we are broken before you, that we are sinful even from birth. And that we will acknowledge that we have a need, not of a political savior, not of a Prozac savior, but of a real sin savior. That we have a need of Jesus to exchange his life for ours on the cross, to give us freedom from what's gone wrong in our hearts and what's wrong in this world. That's our sin. God, I pray for every one of us that we would be willing to come forward and as we take these elements, that we would remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, that he didn't come to to make us feel good about ourselves. He came to free us from sin. And God, I pray for the men in here today. God, I pray that there would be an outpouring of boldness today, of men willing to submit themselves, to acknowledge their shortcomings, to acknowledge their failures before their families. And say, I'm sorry, family. I'm sorry for what I've done. But I'm submitting myself to God today. I'm worshiping the one true king. And I want you to sh- I want to show you how you do that too. God, I pray for every man in here today. That they would have that kind of boldness. To repent of their sins. To cry out for your mercy. And to teach their families to do the same thing. God, we want to be a church that is known for worshiping the true Jesus. Because God, that's the only message we have.
only way that we can make a difference in this world is to get the message of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, out to those around us. God, I pray that we would devote ourselves fully to that. As the worship team begins to sing, we've got about 10 minutes. I encourage you, men, women, take some time with your family. Pray together. Confess your sin together. Crowd to Jesus together. Partake of communion together. And when you're done, the worship team will still be playing. And I encourage you, just like that crowd many years ago, worship Jesus as your king.